Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing, and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC podcasts are supported by advertising. We lost our humanity. We lost our dignity. We got punished for something we did not do. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells the story of the Black 14. Our young lives were flipped upside down. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello and welcome to the World Business Report podcast from the BBC World Service. Namaste. I'm Debina Gupta. And coming up, we will be taking you to Ukraine the Philippines and South Korea. We have a packed program where we are looking at why are more and more farmers protesting in Europe, a junior doctor strike in South Korea and how it could be getting easier to buy a house in China. So stay with us. But first, let's get you here. Well, that's the sound of tractors, which have become a symbol of farmers' protest in Europe. From Germany to Italy, France and Belgium, farmers have been leaving their fields on these tractors to block roads and traffic in major cities across the region. Now, there are many reasons why they're protesting, ranging from higher costs of running a farm to climate-saving green deals And we'll get into that in just a bit. But one key theme in these protests is also emerging. That's about protecting their market from cheaper food imports. That's what farmers in Poland said today as they parked their tractors near the border with Ukraine. We're flooded with food from Ukraine. We're affected by that mess from the EU. It's all upside down. We're trying to do something in this difficult situation since the imports haven't stopped and we are fighting mainly for that. We want to sell our crops and the price is low. So those are farmers from Poland who are protesting against cheaper imports that they're seeing from across the border. That's Ukraine. And it's not only Poland. This is what one farmer told us from Czech Republic. So we're trying to say that uh, we have a problem with Ukrainian agricultural produce, which is uh, being imported to the European Union and which is uh, driving the prices down. And we are not saying that uh, they are just cheap. They are unfair because the the farmers in Ukraine uh, are uh, not supposed to uh, adhere to very strict regulations and rules that our farmers have to obey. So this is what we're trying to um, raise the awareness to. And maybe we're trying to change uh, the European Union's approach to Central and uh, Eastern Europe. So let's break it down now. What our farmer from Czech Republic and other Polish farmers told us. Professor Tim Benton from the Chatham House Institute is joining us. He's a leading expert in food systems and has advised governments in the UK and the EU. Thank you, Professor Benton, for being with us. Could you first give us an idea of what's the volume of imports of grains and other produce that we see from Ukraine coming to the EU? Well, obviously, it has grown significantly uh, uh, since the invasion of Ukraine in 2022. Um, And just as an example from Poland's perspective, in 2021, there were about 526 tonnes of grain that passed across the borders. But in 2022, it was about 3 million tonnes. So a huge, huge increase. Mm. And obviously, then that that depresses the prices that farmers are growing in their local markets. But of course, you know, Ukraine is only a small part of the overall picture. 
for farmer grievances. We talk about all the other problems as well in just a bit with you. But just to understand this, you're talking about a significant increase of grains and other produce coming from Ukraine. But isn't that also helping in a way to control cost of food for consumers here? Well, not in the sense that uh, uh, if farmers in the UK, in the European Union are having to produce food under the cost of production because of the uh, range of environmental protections and other things going on, uh, just um, suppressing the price of food in markets by effectively dumping uh, from Ukraine, uh, where they uh, aren't under the same regulatory regime as as your uh, farmer that you just interviewed mm. said, it is it is unfair. I mean, one has to have absolute sympathy with people living in the war zone and still producing food, but that doesn't mean that it's fair on the uh, producers that have to produce under different regimes, much more costly regimes, and compete directly with them. So that's why Eastern Europe is a bit of a kind of a powder keg at the moment from this. Professor Benton, be with us, because you touched upon the fact that there is, of course, sympathy with farmers in Ukraine who are still uh, doing agriculture despite extremely difficult conditions with the war, uh, which is ongoing in parts of Ukraine with Russia. But uh, how are farmers then feeling uh, in Ukraine and how they're surviving? To know more of that, we have Yegor Skalarov, who is a farmer from Ukraine, who is joining us now. Thank you so much, Yegor, for being with us. You export wheat, soy and rape through Europe, even in these conditions, how crucial is the Europe market, especially now for you? Um, hello. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, actually, we, we do operate on, under very harsh conditions, and especially my farm, we are very close to the front line, and we still still do farming, and we are more than 1,000 kilometers from European border. So our internal log- logistics is very complicated even to get to the European bo- border. But still, for us, the main destination is uh, for exports is Black Sea. Not Europe. Even for now, for, for us, it's cheaper to, to sell to Spain via Black Sea, not via mm. land corridor through Eastern Europe. And of course, you can't and, uh, go through Black Sea all the time because of the conditions right now yeah, uh, in, in yes, the war zone. Yes, so that no. is why many of uh, many farmers are also taking the land route. But could you tell us when you hear these comments from farmers from Europe who say they are being hurt because of uh, cheaper produce that is coming from Ukraine? How do you see that? How do you feel? Of, of course, European, Eastern European farmers, they can have their own, uh, you know, profitability issues uh, nowadays but i personally i think it's not it's not all about ukraine and cheap uh, cheap grain from ukraine it's not the cheap it's 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 uh, you know it's bloody expensive uh, for us to, to to farm in these conditions because uh, for us it's 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 they can cannot even imagine how hard is it, it is to farm in Ukraine. We have no subsidies at all. Yegor, tell us about those about, challenges that you face daily to go to your farm and continue producing uh, crops even in this condition. Yeah, actually, my farm we lost fifty uh, percent of our land under operation because of the proximity to the front lines. So we had three thousand hectares. Now we have one one thousand five hundred hectares under operation. Because of the war, and uh, all the inputs are much uh, more expensive nowadays for us. Even two or three times uh, more expensive. I mean, fertilizers, uh, agrochemistry, 
everything. Uh, we have shortages of staff because uh, many of our employees, they were drafted to the military and they fight, uh, not farm. Mm. Many obstacles, but still, and we have uh, no help from from the government. I mean, in terms of subsidies, it's uh, fully, you know, It is a difficult scenario. Absolutely. It is a difficult yes, scenario, yes. Yegor. But uh, the, what, what now farmers are demanding, especially from Eastern Europe, is there should be tariff imposed on the grains that are coming from Ukraine and uh, more restrictions than already there are. So how much of your mm-hmm. business will be hurt because of that? And how do you view this? What we need in Ukraine is just uh, that we keep our commitments and our European partners do the same. So we need strict rules and we're going to obey them. Yegor Skladov, thank you for joining us. Uh, We'll have to leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us, uh, a farmer from Ukraine, sharing his challenges. Professor Benton, you just heard uh, Yegor and the difficulties under which they are trying to produce crop. And what he mentioned was also the fact that there's a war going on. Input costs have gone up for them as well. Now, on the other side, if you look at other parts of Europe, we are seeing farmers talking about the same thing. In fact, there was a farmer from Greece who told this to the BBC earlier. There are many problems, most of all the fuel and the energy costs. The energy costs have broken our bones. All our money goes there. Last year was catastrophic for farmers. We didn't produce grapes. We didn't produce olive oil. We produced a bit of cotton, but we sold it for almost nothing. Now, Professor Benton, worry over these expenses is concerning, especially the hike in energy cost. A lot of it also is linked to the geopolitics that we just talked about with Yegor. Yeah, indeed. And uh, I would say farmers are in around the world, including in India and in Europe and other places, are, are caught really on the horns of multiple dilemmas. We've got the issue that, you know, prices, cost of living uh, for us, prices, input prices have gone up for farmers. They are small businesses selling into big businesses typically, so they get squeezed by um, uh, uh, power imbalances. We've got the issues to do with trade, whether it is Mercosur, the the, uh, Latin American trade deal, or Ukrainian uh, um, uh, goods coming across borders. Uh, And we've got the issues to do with environmental regulation, you know, less water around, more importance in biodiversity conservation, more importance in reducing emissions from the farming sector. And then finally, we've got the absolute fear that many farmers feel about climate change and not having access to weather that will allow them to grow stuff. So between those four kind of buckets of things, it's a really precarious living to to be had for many farmers across the world. Thank you so much for being with us and giving us an extreme analysis of that. Professor Tim Benton from the Chatham House, thank you for joining us on this story. We leave it here. Now, the year of dragon has begun in China and in a push to boost the sluggish economy, dare I say, in a dragon mode, the People Bank of China has announced a cut in a key loan rate. The five-year loan prime rate, which affects borrowing costs for households, was cut from 4.2% to 3.95%. That is a 0.25% point cut, which is expected to encourage home buyers and boost the country's struggling property market. Rebecca Chung-Wilkins is a senior Asia correspondent from Bloomberg and has been writing about this today and joined me from Hong Kong to explain what difference it could make. 
So we have seen the biggest ever cut to China's five-year loan prime rate. And this is essentially the benchmark that banks in China use to set mortgages. Ultimately, the intention is to make it cheaper to borrow and encourage people to come back into the property sector and buy real estate. And it's sort of the strongest measure that we've seen in ter- so far in terms of trying to use these mortgage rates to try and get people back into the market and underscores the urgency urgency with which authorities are viewing this years-long crisis in Chinese real estate. And is it enough then, do you think, to attract new buyers who can then spur the growth in property sector? I think that's the really key issue. And so while we might see some sort of near-term positives, I think longer term, the outlook is still pretty pessimistic about this market. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is just that we have not actually seen prices come down enough to try and stimulate demand. There is really a lot of hesitancy and a lack of confidence, particularly over buying new homes in China. Um, There is not really a conviction that we've seen the bottom of the market market yet. So while secondary homes, the prices have fallen a little bit further and we've seen a bit of recovery there. For for first-time buyers or for people looking for a primary home, we just haven't seen that confidence sort of coming back yet. And the second is a much sort of more longer-term structural issue that authorities are trying to grapple with in China. And that is one of of fundamental oversupply in a context where demographically we are seeing shrinking demand for homes in the first place. And so we've seen construction actually fall by about 18% so far. But in order to actually meet the actual demand for property, it needs to fall by 30%. So there's still quite a ways and still quite a sort of lot of pain that potentially might befall the sector. And in countries like China, and especially in the Asian economy, buying homes is the first step that you do to secure your future. It's also seen as a saving instrument. Like you said, many people have second homes. Why is it that young buyers are not able to come and invest in these new homes? Yeah, I think that's an absolutely critical part of this story. You know, for, for decades, buying a home has been a core part of the sort of middle class dream in China, really a key aspiration. But because of this crackdown that we've seen by the Chinese government, ultimately instigated to try and make growth more sustainable in the long term in China. But the cost of that has to be to see the sort of value of your most prized asset fall year over year. And so that has really dented sense sentiment and dented confidence in, in the point of owning a home in the first place. This, I think, also not a conviction that will really ever come back to the inflated levels that, that we've seen in the property market. Mm. And it's not just that. We've also seen fewer options for Chinese people, particularly the middle class, to invest their wealth in the stock market too. Because of this lingering gloom over the outlook of China's economy, we've seen losses for three years in Chinese stock markets. So there are fewer, fewer places for people in China, ordinary people people to sort of park their their cash. And it's not only the stock market and the property market, but overall consumer spending is actually falling. And that's not good for the world's second largest economy. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, ultimately, Beijing is trying to engineer a transformation in its economy. It wants to move from debt fuel growth to boosting domestic demand. Uh, and Lunar New Year, which we've just had, is a, is a really good example where although travel numbers and spending numbers were up, actually, when you dive a little bit deeper, they're still quite low relative to the pre-pandemic levels that suggest although more Chinese people are coming out and spending, they're actually being much thriftier in how they're spending that money. And it is and is an issue in, in trying to engineer this transformation, but also to try and kind of get people up and spending and investing in new businesses and thinking about planning for the future that's so, so key. That was Rebecca Chung Wilkin, Senior Asia Correspondent for Bloomberg. You with World Business Report from the BBC World Service. When you see Iran close up, you realize just how complex a political landscape it is. The Global Story. Smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. It seems that Iran's strategy at the moment is to increase the tension in the Middle East. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. When Israel does agree to a ceasefire in Gaza, Iran will then worry about Israel then turning its sights towards Iran again. The Global Story. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you have to spend money, well, you have to use cash. We'll be talking about that in a bit. And coins and, well, credit cards or debit cards. And that's where Sweta Ramachandran, fund manager at Artemis Investment Management, is joining us to talk about, Sweta, it's the biggest news that you're seeing on the merger street where you have uh, Capital One, which is acquiring Discover Financial Services. And it's to create... uh, uh, one of the biggest credit card company if it goes ahead. Indeed. And uh, in 2024, this is, of course, the biggest global merger to date. Uh, and it will create the largest credit card company by loan volume in the U.S. Uh, to put it in context, the combined entity will be bigger uh, than J.P. Morgan, as well as Citigroup, which are both number one and number two, respectively, uh, as lenders in that market. And perhaps people can go to Walmart, which has reported its results and is uh, promising good deals. Uh, Yes, the lesson from Walmart really seems to be that consumers are looking for a good deal because although the results were quite positive in that uh, uh, for the period from November to the end of January, their like-for-like sales excluding fuel went up by 4%, that was actually made up more by consumers shopping more frequently rather than buying expensive items. In fact, the average ticket price uh, actually went down slightly, which suggests that the cost of living crisis is taking its toll even on uh, a resilient Mm. U.S. shopper. Well, you're talking about the cost of living crisis. We just uh, talked about that earlier on the show with farmers in Europe protesting and its impact on inflation. But Sweta Ramachandran, thank you for joining us. Fund manager at Artemis Investment Management with those insights. We started this program with farmer strikes. So keeping up with the theme, let's go to South Korea. And this is where trainee doctors or junior doctors are on a strike. Surgeries have been delayed and hospitals have turned away patients today after more than 1,600 doctors in South Korea went on a strike. They are protesting the government's plans to introduce more trained physicians into the system. The BBC's Hyung Jung Kim is following the story in Seoul. Thousands of hospital doctors in South Korea have quit their jobs in protest at the government's plans to increase the number of medical students, specifically to add more medical school placements. And so about 60,415 junior doctors, including residents and trainee doctors, submitted resignation letter. And among them, more than 1,600 doctors did not show up to work on Tuesday. 
So none of these resignation letters are actually accepted so far. And the full extent of the strike's impact is yet unclear. However, several hospitals have said they have switched to contingency plans and official warned of gaps, and surgeries have been delayed and hospitals have turned away some patients. And the government is taking a firm line, and it seems like the problem is expected to continue. Actually, South Korea has critical physician shortages in remote areas, and in specialties such as pediatrics and obstetrics, which are seen as less lucrative fields compared to practice such as dermatology and plastic surgery. So why are the trainee doctors who are also known as junior doctors going on strike? Because it seems that the system needs more doctors. There are less number of doctors in South Korea. Currently, only 2.5 doctors per 1,000 people in South Korea. And this is the second lowest rate in the OECD group of nations after Mexico. But then the doctors are against this government's plan to increase the number of medical students. And they actually don't openly mention the reason behind their strike, which is they are worried about less earnings because there will be more competition if there will be more, you know, student medical students students who will be doctor in the future. But actually, the Doctors Association try not to mention about this problem, which the government and also the you know, South Korean people are criticizing because they said the doctors are only care about their earnings and South Korean citizens are criticizing that they don't care about the people or the patients. They only care about what they can earn. Because, you know, the more people means more competition. But actually, the doctors don't mention about this. And they are saying that they're against this government's plan because these plans are not considering the actual problems of this medical field in South Korea, which is the lower charge for medical treatment for the essential medical care. And because they've been claiming that the charge for medical treatment for essential care has been comparatively lower than the, you know, the plastic surgery or dermatology which is like not the essential medical care. And the doctors are saying that unless this problem is solved, they cannot accept the government's plan to increase the number of the medical students. How is this affecting workflow in hospitals? And if this strike is going to continue, as you say, what kind of plans hospitals are making, especially for emergency operations and procedures? Right now, the first stage is the trainee doctors are the one who's striking right now. And so the hospitals are uh, only working on the surgeries and procedures that are critical and that are the emergency things. And they also try to do the surgeries with the doctors who remain in the hospital. You know, the professors who didn't yet submit the resignation letter or yet participate in this strike. So the hospital said that there are only 25 cancellations of the surgery so far, but it is expected that the problem will become bigger and bigger. That was the BBC's Hyung Jung Kim joining us from Seoul, and you can read more about that story on bbc.com. Now, earlier on the program, we talked about cards and cash, and now it's time to talk about coins, because this story is from the Philippines about a problem many cash-based economies face. Hannah Mullane is with me in the studio, and Hannah, you recently were there and found a rather odd practice among shopkeepers there. 
I did, Davina. Yes. So businesses in the Philippines are in some cases having to give customers sweets or candy instead of change because they're running out of coins. It's the smaller denomination coins that are falling out of circulation as they're worth so little that they end up being stored in jars at home and forgotten about. And it's creating an artificial shortage. Well, Hannah, I remember being in India and over there, shopkeepers try to give you avoid avoid to give you exact change because they want to save their money, to be frank. And But this is different because this is actually about an artificial coin shortage. How is it affecting people in the Philippines? Yeah, it is a little different. So shopkeepers do want to give you the right change. They just simply <laughs> don't have it. Uh, it's really affecting the businesses in the Philippines that rely on cash. And there's lots of those. Retailers, market traders and jeepney drivers, almost all of them do the business they do in cash. Uh, Jeepney drivers, they're the cheapest mode of transport in the Philippines, big trucks with lots of benches in the back to transport lots of people. And it costs about 13 Filipino peso to get a ticket. That's 23 cents. And you need lots of small coins to pay. So the coin shortage has led to some talks about whether to introduce mobile banking on these trucks. And Gcash is the most popular mobile banking service in the Philippines. But drivers are reluctant to make the change. Here's John Acampo. He's 60 and has been driving a jeepney for most of his life. So when it comes to using Gcash to collect fares, I won't be able to keep up. I won't know what to do with my cell phone. What might happen to me is I'd just give up driving my jeepney and pass it on to someone who knows how to do it. Sad for John there, giving up his jeepney rather than uh, getting on board with mobile banking. But another problem that retailers are, are facing is tax. They have to add tax on at the till. So that often means the final bill needs small coins and change. Um, and if they could factor that into the price and could round up to whole numbers, then they'd rely less on those need for small coins. So that might be something that comes into place in the future. Well, this seems it's not a small coin matter, but what is being done to try and fix the problem then? Well, the central bank in the Philippines, the BSP, is installing lots of coin machines in shopping malls where you can bring your coins to the mall, deposit the uh, the coins into the machines and have the money put onto your mobile banking app. Um, They don't seem very revolutionary, these machines, but it is the first time the central bank have installed them and they've been really, really popular. Mm. We've had 410 million peso through the machines and collected and redistributed just in the first six months. That's almost seven and a half million dollars. But these machines are encouraging people again to not use their coins and instead use their e-wallets and mobile banking. Well, quickly then, Hannah, because if people are spending on their mobile phones and still not using coins, how will the shortage be fixed? It's a good question, Davina, and it's something I don't think the central bank have got an answer to yet either. They really want people to use the small coins, but it's inconvenient for people to use them. So they aren't changing their behaviour. Bobby Claudio is the head of the Philippine Retail Association. He thinks that some of the smaller denomination coins just need to come out of circulation altogether to fix the problem. You know, it costs more to produce coins than the value of the coins. I mean, the government cannot just keep minting coins and people keep keeping it because it's a never-ending problem. Well, it doesn't seem like the central bank are planning to take any of those coins out of circulation just yet. So we'll have to wait and see if people shift their behaviours and they manage to persuade people to use their coins more. Did you get some coins from Philippines? I did get some coins, but you know what? The small coins I didn't see at all whilst I was there. So that shows you they're just not around. People aren't seeing them.
Well, there might be a collector's item in the future then. But Hannah, thank you so much. Hannah Mullane's story is available on Business Daily, wherever you get your podcast. Well, that's it from the World Business Report podcast on the BBC World Service with me, Devina Gupta. We love to hear your thoughts, so do write in to us at world.business at bbc.co.uk. Until we meet next time, namaste.